Hey, what's everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, a podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, pray, and interpret sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm Chase Krause. And I'm Ryan Pollock. Let's dive in. What up, everybody? Ryan, how's it going, my dude? Happy Thursday afternoon to you, brother. I can't complain. That's right. Today's my Friday because I work Sunday through Thursday. So What's that like? It's... It's weird at first, but then after like doing it for like years, just with ministry and stuff, like, you know, it works out nice. It's kind of like a semi, when, whenever we have Mondays off, it's like a three and a half day weekend. Well, back in the day when I was an Episcopal clergyman, I often took, my, I mean, Monday was my day off, which was great because after Sunday, you're pretty tired. You've been at church all day long talking to a bajillion people, but you, um, all the bank holidays are on Monday, so you kind of yeah. <laughs> well, so that's why on those. that's why I did it. So I have some friends in ministry too. They take Mondays for the same reason. They take Mondays off, and I thought about it, but then I'm like, well, but if my family ever wants to like travel or see anybody, it's really hard to do that in one day. So if I just suck it up and say, let's just bust it out Sunday through Thursday, we can always leave for somewhere on like Thursday night or Friday morning, have Friday Saturday, get back to get back to the grind on on Sunday. Work for a church, folks. If you're on that's the fence. Right. Work for it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. If, if, if this isn't selling you, this is a, <laughs> but then in the summer, it's great because everything's a little bit more chill. So like, I don't, it, like just not that much goes on. So it turns into like a three and a half day weekend, like, or four day weekend sometimes, especially yeah. if we have Monday holidays. Yeah, that's great. Um, so bump the system. Oh, right. Know? Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm getting ready for my paternity leave. Man. Uh, coming in hot. Going to take 14 days off and then. I guess they're really going to be on because that's a, that's not a, right. that's not a it, vacation. It's not at all. <laughs> so yeah, so that's, well, October 6th. October 6th, oh coming man. in hot. Yeah, yeah. so uh, if you're listening to this podcast, if there's ever a random episode where Ryan magically disappears, you now know know why. It's because he's not sleeping. Maybe maybe I could do it with you over Zoom and... Uh, you know, oh, the, you're you're a brave man. If there's babies crying in the background, you just deal with it. We'll just roll with the, it. It's part of the game. Yeah. yeah. Literally, Eli. Eli and Lena have been sleeping through the night like pretty well. But last night was one of those nights where Eli got, got up at like 1230 or 1. And, you know, made him a bottle. Walked upstairs. He's eight months old or whatever. So not totally unusual. But it's one of those things. I gave him the bottle. He's kind of fussy. I waited for him to finish it, which I usually don't do. But I just had a feeling like I was like, I don't know why, but something's. Something's anyway, up. Yeah. And then after he finishes the bottle, he sits up and he just starts talking to himself. And I'm like, uh-oh. He's like awake. Like oh. awake, awake. Hmm. And so I'm like, okay, let's, I'm just going to I'm gonna take him downstairs to the bed with my wife and I. Not ideal, but like whatever. Like he'll... You uh, you forgot to put the thimble of uh, Jack Daniels I know, in the bottle. I did. Well, well, here's the thing. We brought him downstairs and he just woke up more. Like he started giggling and like badgering, babbling to himself and like jumped on my face and was kicking Viva and it took us like an hour and a half <laughs> to get him down. So Vibe and I woke up this morning. We're just like, I'm glad God made coffee. Like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> just one of those mornings, you know? Thank you, Lord. That's for, right. For the sweet bean juice. Yeah, yeah. So uh, if you're not excited to do that again, you know. <laughs> um, but I have the Greek slash Hebrew word of the day today. Hey, let's hear Watch it. Watch out. Let's um, hear it. I didn't segue at all, though. I just kind of jumped in. This uh, is, you speaking know. of things that are not related to coffee, <laughs> our Hebrew word of the day that's right. is. <laughs> so uh, it's, it relates to what we're talking about today. It's the, it's the Hebrew word uh, anach. And you gotta have some phlegm when you say it. Enough. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It means long-necked person, literally, or it could be translated as giants. 
because that's what we're going to talk about today. We're talking about Giants. We are talking about Giants. So if you're following along with us in the book, this is Mike Heiser's The Unseen Realm, Part 5, Conquest and Failure. And the first thing he's going to talk about here is Giants and Giant Problems. You may remember some of our discussion last time about the Nephilim, and we're going to just pick right up there where we left off. So correct me if I'm wrong, Nephilim pop up, Genesis 6, right? Yep. Genesis yep, yep, 6, yep. like verses, like whatever, I don't know, 3. Yeah, 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 yeah. The sons of God and the daughters of men and the off, right. the, the giants that result from their union. And it's like one like, super obscure, like the Nephilim were around in those days kind mm-hmm. of thing, which applies mm-hmm. that they weren't around whenever Genesis was written, potentially. Yeah, and so at this point in the biblical narrative, the uh, the Israelites have come out of Egypt. I mean, this is a, a long time after the events of Genesis 6. They've come out of slavery in Egypt. They've gotten the law. They've wandered around in the desert for... No, they haven't done their wilderness wandering quite yet. When they're Genesis right was the, written? Uh, no, here in the, in the narrative. Oh, where we sorry, sorry. Yeah, so yeah. they're right on the edge of uh, Canaan, the promised land, and... The spies report back to Moses, there are giants in the land. We're scared. We don't want to fight some giants. It's interesting yeah. what the uh, uh, Heiser talks about, the different measurements for the giants there, which could be, I guess there's two schools of thought, and, and one, uh, Goliath, for example, is a descendant of these giants, and he's nine and um, nine, nine feet tall and nine inches or something, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And then another one is six foot six. In any case, these are some tall dudes. Yeah, they're, they're sure. big boys. And we have to remember that, you know, 2600 2800 years ago whenever this was written depends on who you talk to anyway the average height was like not that tall like it was like, he says five feet yeah five feet tall like a solid average. solid five footer so yeah that's so this is like yao ming is is like the comparable height difference here if you're the average five foot ten male yeah so if you're if you're a spy going up to scout out the land and everybody looks like yao ming you're gonna yeah it's gonna get the heck out of there right you're quick. like a hobbit essentially mm-hmm. um and so uh actually yeah i like this section of heiser um basically what he does is he he uses numbers 13 there's a passage in numbers 13 uh, where it connects the Nephilim to the Anakim, or Anakim. I'm just going to say Anakim. It's like <laughs> Anakin Skywalker, but not. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, the Anakim uh, are a tribe or a clan of Canaanites. Um, so we have to remember that Can- Canaan was a region with multiple kingdoms in it. It wasn't just like the kingdom of Canaan. Um, and it gets a little confusing because uh, they use Canaanites in the, throughout the Old Testament kind of interchangeably with multiple types of people. So this can be kind of confusing when it talks about, and Heiser points this out. And all the names are old. Like right. if you try to find Canaan on a map today, you're going to have a little bit of trouble. Yeah. It's not around it's anymore. It's not really a thing. Uh, but a good study Bible or a good biblical commentary will show you where the modern day equivalents are for this sort of thing yeah. in the Middle East. So arguably, uh, if we take Numbers 13 seriously, that uh, at that time, the Israelites uh, viewed the Canaanites as descendant of the Nephilim. So an ancient bad guy going all the way back to Genesis 6. It might be good if we quote that here. So Numbers 13, 32 through 33, this is the ESV translation. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, that is, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Yeah. And so this, where Heiser goes to this, we're going to spend the bulk of today talking about, is during, if you actually look at the map of like the desert wanderings, the Israelites are out of Egypt and they're going north, right? Eventually trying to get to the promised land. And there's a couple of kingdoms uh, that they pass to pretty casually, right? They And they're all related back to uh 
was it uh, Enoch, right? The descendants of Enoch, right? That, those are the tribes that they passed through like peacefully. Is that right? Not well, Enoch, I, sorry. Uh, Esau. I can't remember particularly. That yeah, sounds yeah, right yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It's, essentially the, the couple of kingdoms, like if you follow along, that they passed to, they pass through, they trade with all these things, uh, were basically their ancient family members, essentially. So coming from descendants of Esau, you know, Jacob and Esau, all that thing, all that thing. And then they eventually get to a point with uh, the kingdom of Og, I think it was the first, or the king Og, of Og. the king of Bashan. Yeah, thank you. Um, and that was the first bro who was like, nah, man, you can't pass through my land. Let's fight. And so it raises the question, Heiser raises the question of why these people, right? Like why start fighting now? Um, and, this, and this is when the Anakim come in. This is, this is arguably, this is where the Canaanites are right? The ancient enemy of Israelites. Right? Yeah. And, and for the sake of my own brain here, I'm just going to refer to all the bad guys here as Canaanites. That's good. Um, yeah. yeah. Just because all, the, all, all the different tribes are tricky for me to talk about right here. And, and like now. to try to pronounce them like in like the Hebrew, like lettering, it's just like, I'm not going to try it's, to pronounce it. It's quite that. tricky. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, so the Canaanite guys, these are, these are the bad guys here. And Heiser's point in the, we're going to take a little bit of a departure here from Heiser because his main point is to try and convince us that these people, these giants in the, in the Canaanite territory were the descendants of the Nephilim. Right. And so, uh, Sure. Let's just go yeah, with them there I mean, and, say, I, and say that's fine. Yeah. Whether, whether that's true or not, I don't think you and I care about so much. No. And, and numbers arguably agrees with them. Like if we're going to take numbers 13 semi-seriously, like, and I don't think it affects really the translation at yeah, all or the, yeah. the issue at all. We kind of want to get more into the ethical, ethical and moral ramifications of this yeah. conquest. Yeah. So essentially this is the first time in the Old Testament where God... Uh, apparently or, or arguably he commands haram warfare, which I guess is another Hebrew word of the day. It just means total war. So Ryan, you want to break men, that down? Men, women, and children, livestock. Everything. Uh, yeah. So we're yeah. talking about genocide essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And towns too. Yeah. Like, um, don't, don't take their pottery with you. Definitely right. don't take their idols, burn everything to the ground sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. So this is total war. So uh, the question then that arises is can God, command genocide and mm -hmm. this is like this is a, a pretty relevant question in the sense of like nature of god thing if you're talking to the new atheist gang these are coming these are some of their proof texts for trying to convince you that the god of the scriptures is uh, a sadomasochist or somebody right. that you can't be trusted if you read dawkins dawkins literally points to this exact topic yeah how can god be all loving when x and such happens right so i think it, 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 it's something that we we should try and answer yeah so i guess before um we dive into the different options. Do we want to get into like the Catholic thought on like just war in general, just to like lay our foundation of the, this is where the church is right now. Uh, I think we should go through, through your three points here first okay. and, then and then we'll, go just and then we'll circle around with Gaudium et Spes and the catechism. Okay, cool. So uh, basically th there probably are more than three views or three interpretations of this. Um, but uh, three, I, I like the best, uh, what am I going to talk about? Because it's our podcast and that's <laughs> how we roll. Um, so anyways, so there's three different uh, strong theories um, on the question of can God command genocide? So all three of them, and Ryan's going to play like devil's advocate a little bit in case I say something not nuanced or unclear. Um, and all three of these, you could believe any of them as a Catholic. The, the church has never spoken dogmatically on this subject. Um, so we have a bit of wiggle room here. Um, now, just in all honesty, I still don't know where I land 
on this question. My two most influential professors, Dr. Michael Barber and Dr. John Kincaid, fell on total opposite ends of this uh, question. Which um, one was which? Um, yeah, so the, uh, the, the number one's gonna be Michael Barber, number two's gonna be John Kincaid, number three is gonna be another professor that I totally blanking on his name here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and I actually saw them debate the issue, like in, they did a live debate. Oh, cool. Um, and it was really cool, my brain really hurt afterwards. Sure, um, yeah. And so I'm not gonna give the entire debate, obviously, I'm just gonna give like very bare bones kind of explanation. So question is, can God command genocide? Mm-hmm. Uh, interpretive option number one is yes, he can. So why then is that argument? Uh, and this is Dr. Barber and Dr. Barber, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry if I'm totally butchering your uh, syllogism and arguments and all these things. Um, but anyway, um, so the answer is yes, he can. Why? Well, there's a few things. One, it literally says so in the Bible. It says God commanded Moses to tell the people, go in and Haram warfare, total mm-hmm, war, mm-hmm. D- knock them out, wipe, wipe them out, genocide, yep. right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and then, but we didn't have to justify this, right? Because as Catholics, we know that God is all good, all powerful, all knowing, you know, all these things, right? So how can an all good God command genocide? Um, so an argument for this, not the only one, but an argument for this is that the Canaanites in general, their religion was pretty bonkers. Um, they worshiped Baal or Baal. Um, and in order to worship him effectively, you essentially had to sacrifice a child or at least a human eventually. I think it's one child per family or something like that, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's pretty messed up. And, and when, this kind of gives into spiritual warfare a little bit, but when you sacrifice or consecrate someone, your child, especially to Satan, um, they quite literally are being opened up to satanic influence, right? So they're actually just listening to a podcast not too long ago, uh, Matt Frad's podcast, um, Catholic, no, uh, Matt Pint- Fred. Yeah, Pints with Aquinas. Pints um, with Aquinas, he had an exorcist, Matt Fred. Yeah, he had an exorcist on that lived in Italy for a while, and he was doing an exorcism on this woman who, as an infant, her parents consecrated her to Satan. Good um, Lord. And, uh, and they didn't know this at first, and it kind of got, but she was literally possessed. Like, they had to Jeez. do an exorcism. Um, and so, arguably, so the question is, how can an all-good God command genocide? Well, if God knows that these people are literally sacrificing babies to Satan, like killing them and burning them, right? Um, then it, it is therefore more merciful for God to go in and just kill them before they could be sacrificed to a demon, right? Sure. Well, I'll put on my Richard Dawkins hat here yeah, and, sure, re- sure. and respond to that one and say, well, what? A, okay, like, sure, it's bad to sacrifice kids, but what about uh, the second or the thirdborn who had a pretty decent chance of not being offered to Baal? Um, or what about, yeah, suppose there were at least, surely not everybody's involved in the Baal coat cult to, to that degree like what do we do about them surely there were some innocent people in the canaanite territories sure and then the, and the second thing is um and this is kind of going why the the israelites had laws that they did is because god didn't want his people to fall into this worship of demons either right um so he says it's an extreme approach like why couldn't israel just be stronger well it's because they're people and they suck but also we know that the israelites did eventually worship baal and like yes. gehenna the fires of Gehenna was the place that they sacrificed their children to Baal. Yeah, and the, and, and the Lord makes w- quite clear that one reason he's taking the Israelites out of Egypt is so that they can worship him properly. The right. idea being that in, in the in Egypt, they're not able to do that. Right. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's so that's option number one is yes. Okay, can God command genocide? Yes. We just kind of went through the reasons. Uh, option number two is no. <laughs> and, and so... Uh, and here's here's the reality, right? So God can kill anybody he wants, right? Because God gave us life. He can take it away. He is God. Pretty right? foundational Christian presupposition right. there. Yeah. yeah. We are dust, you are destined to dust, you shall return. 
Um, so the question isn't, can God take away life? Of course he can. He's God. But the question is, can God command me to kill a baby? Mm-hmm. Right. Can mm-hmm. he do that? Right. Mm-hmm. And the, the second option is, well, no, he can't because that's contrary to both his and more importantly in this argument, my nature. Right. Because it is contrary to my nature to take the life of an innocent. This right. is very much in keeping with certain Jewish interpretations of the Akedah or the binding of yeah. Isaac, where, where you'll have certain rabbis saying, you know, uh, Abraham really dropped the ball here. He ought to have put up a fight when the Lord asked him to sacrifice his son. Right. Um, and he didn't. Like, this is really a weakness in Abraham's character here. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, this argument, is, is, and this is very contingent on knowing philosophy, this argument, right? If for a lot of uh, our non-Catholic interpreters, they... You know, God, everything is because it's, it's arbitrary. Morality is arbitrary, right? God can do whatever he wants. He's God, right? Yeah. It's very sure. Occamish. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so this, this second view is really in line with Catholic thought in the sense of it, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at nature. It's contrary, and this is an extreme, and I was talking with Ryan before this, but you have to think about it in the most extreme way. Can God ask me to take a pickaxe to a baby? Right. That's that's the question we're trying to answer here. Right. And so the second is, is no, he can't because it's contrary to my nature to take the life of an innocent baby. Right. Um, same reason why we think abortion's wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. It's contrary mm-hmm. to the nature, um, no matter what the justifications of number one might be. Mm-hmm. The, the, OK, so uh, option number three. And like I said, these are all like as a Catholic, you could take any of these. And like I said, I don't know where I land exactly yet. Um, so number, th- and I've changed my mind several times. Sure. Um, yeah. That's not, um, no easy answer. Yeah. Uh, and so option number three is um, a bit more nuanced, but essentially we have to remember that the Bible was written after the fact, right? All of these historical events happened after the fact and the people of Israel, the theology of Israel developed over time chronologically as God revealed himself slowly, but surely. And so we get the f- fullness of truth in Jesus Christ. And so option number three says, these things happened, right? Israel did total war, or at least tried to do it, and it, and it happened to work out well, right? And so because the Israelites at the time didn't understand what uh, omnipotence of God really meant, right? They didn't, there was no distinction between God's permissive will and his actual will. Actual will be the things that God wants to happen, permissive what he allows to happen, right? All evil falls under p- permissive will. They, don't, they didn't have this understanding of this. Everything happened because God willed it, period, hard stop. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what this third option is, the, the fact that these things happened and good things happened to come from them, namely that Israel got the land, right? And so the authors of these books attributed to God these things that happened because they worked out well. So essentially, this is a nuanced view of scripture, essentially, right? So taking kind of the arguments from number, number two, that God's nature— and taking the, the the misplaced theology and philosophy of the Israelites at the time, they just didn't know any better. So they attributed to God something that actually wasn't of God necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, these are the three kind of options of, you know, can God command genocide? One, yes. Two, no. Three, it, he never really did. And it wasn't really a thing. It was just, it was more of a... It's a it's a mythic retelling of right. of, of history. Yeah, um, yeah. We we definitely displaced the Canaanites in order to get ourselves into the promised land. Um, that might raise some eyebrows even back in the day. Like it's not as if genocide was an uncontroversial right. a- activity back then. Well, w- one of the justifications for it was these were literally the spawn of the Nephilim. These right. people were were uh, worshippers of Baal. They were uh, killing they were giants. children. They were giants. Uh, these were bad people, and the Lord used us as his instrument to wipe them out. Now, whether or not that's true is, of course, right. the, the and for And question. for Heiser, we have to remember that the Nephilim were like spawns of angels, which is, we're, we're kind of dismissing that view as, because Catholics, we nature, angels can't actually reproduce. It's not a thing. And so, 
Um, for Heiser, he but he does take more of a supernatural worldview of this. It's like these are literally demon spawn, yeah, essentially, sure. right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. um, anyway, that's just another layer of Heiser's. Argument. It's not, uh, I suppose, and that might be one reason why he doesn't spend too much time, at least in this section, talking about the moral or ethical ramifications. That is to say, because. Um, you know, it's not genocide if they're like demon creatures. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, we should kill them. <laughs> like, they should go if away. If they're hellspawn, that kind of, that dilemma goes away. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, So, um, So, yeah, those are the three options. I, I mean, I there's a there's a book called um, Dark Passages of Scripture um, that is uh, it's written by a Catholic theologian, um, really sharp guy. He's the, he's, he's the guy I got number three from. Before I read the book, I was only, I only knew about number one and two. I'd heard other arguments, but like, they were kind of just like, meh. Yeah. You know? um, so he was a guy that uh, put number three into my brain. So yeah, Dark Passages of Scripture. And there's another book too. We actually want to plug a book here that neither of us have read, which is kind of dangerous. So, <laughs> That's right. So, so, so it so might suck and I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> this might be the worst book ever. I don't know. But uh, it's been on my shelf for years and I thought it might be relevant to bring up today. So this is in the uh, what what's, this is in the Counterpoint series. So if you've yeah. ever seen the Counterpoint books, they're basically like three views on the atonement, yeah, four really views good. on spiritual yeah. gifts, and they'll kind of bring to get together different Christian traditions and get them to argue with each other and then allow people to respond to them. Yeah, so they're not always, They don't always have a Catholic or Orthodox view, but a lot of the times I mean, they do. There's often like a Catholic person in the, in right. the fray. Uh, this one's called Show Them No Mercy, Four Views on God and Canaanite Genocide. So the contributors are uh, C.S. Cowles, Eugene Merrill. Uh, Eugene Merrill is actually a... Um, I think he's currently a theologian in residence in my at my undergrad, which oh, is kind of nice. cool. Uh, Daniel Gard and then Trimper Longman. I, I'm pretty sure all those dudes are Protestants. Anyway, this is in the Counterpoint series, Show Them No Mercy. So it just goes through, uh, we gave you three views today, but it goes through four in, a, in an attempt to account for this episode here in the scriptures. And odds are number two and three are not included in that book. Um, they might be. Yeah. We, we haven't read it, so... <laughs> Why don't you guys read it and report back to us? That's right. Let us, let us know if we should read it. Um, but yeah, so so this then raises the question of like, what's the church's stance on, on warfare now, right? What, what does the church believe about just war? Is just war possible? Um, when, when was the last just war fought, if ever? All these questions are really important for us because it, it's important to not Americanize our view of, of war, right? Um, so like one thing I think is, uh, surprisingly controversial that I'll tell people is that the nuclear bomb that ended World War II w- was not a moral act. Like, oh, sorry, it was a moral act. It was just an evil moral act, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, it, so it's one of those things where, as Americans, we we look at that as like, oh, it ended the war. Like, praise God, that's awesome. It's like, actually, no, don't praise God. That's that it's was our pragmatism yeah, talking there, exactly. not much else. Yeah. Look at. Uh, so we want to talk to, about Gaudium et Spes, which is a uh, one of the real foundational pillars of Vatican II, and we, we want to talk about the Catechism also. So this is from Gaudium et Spes, paragraph 80. It says, Any act of war aimed indiscriminately at the destruction of entire cities, of extensive areas, along with their population, is a crime against God and man himself. It merits unequivocal and unhesitating condemnation. And this is written, like, you know, not too long after World War II, so they... They kind of knew what they were addressing. This is fresh. This yeah, is fresh yeah. in their minds. Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, it, it talks about certain chemical and biological weapons, and of course the, the A-bomb is fresh on everybody's minds. These weapons are that are indiscriminate between combatants and non-combatants right. have to be unequivocally condemned. Yeah. So the church makes that. There's not a whole lot of mystery there. No, this is yeah. a very black and white issue. And and so I haven't studied just war in a while, but I think there's like there's a 
there's a three or four like criteria. One is it has to be only combatants or harmed, right? Oh, you got the list. I have it ah, here. Yeah, nice. yeah. Vatican.va, my friends. You have the whole <laughs> catechism right here. So this is Catechism of the Catholic Church 2309. The strict conditions for legitimate defense by military force require rigorous consideration. The gravity of such a decision makes it subject to rigorous conditions of moral legitimacy. At one and the same time, and then it gives you, let's see, one, two, three, four points. The damage inflicted by the aggressor on the nation or community of nations must be lasting, grave, and certain. That is, you can't do a preemptive strike. Right, right? it has to be a defensive war. It's defensive. All other means of putting an end to it, the conflict must have been shown to be impractical or ineffective. So this is a last resort. Right. Uh, There must be serious prospects of success. So if you're going to wage a war on terror, is the goal really going to be to kill every terrorist that's ever lived? Like, is that a realistic goal? You You don't risk lives unnecessarily. Right. The use of arms must not produce evils and disorders graver than the evil to be eliminated. That's talking about chemical and biological warfare. Right. The power of modern means of destruction weighs very heavily in evaluating this condition. Right. So it has to be, you can't, uh, you can't overkill essentially. Right. So for, so the part of it is, um, once you've conquered them, you can't just, you know, keep stepping on them. Right. So like once the, once the victory is won in the war, right. Don't, don't take it beyond it's, it's what it needs to do. Right. So essentially, yeah, for, for, for the, the church's stance, and this might sound like as Americans, this might make you uncomfortable because we're just, this is not the American view necessarily. I mean, Oh, uh, surprise. The Catholic Church ain't American. <laughs> right. The Catholic Church could care less about Republicans and Democrats. That's right. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so it has it's always defensive. Right. It's it's always defensive. It's always you have to actually be pretty certain that you're going to win. You can never harm non-combatants. It right? has to be a last resort. Yeah. So um, when it comes to World War Two, because that's you know, the last major war. Um, yeah. It was it was it was not a just war pretty early on. The second we did carpet bombings, it was not a just war. It was not fought justly. Why? Because non-combatants were harmed. Yeah, right? intentionally. Right, intentionally, yeah. like knowingly right. so. Right, mm-hmm. and obviously the nuclear bomb is the, the epitome of this. Right, mm-hmm. um, and so you can argue that it was started as a just war on the part of Americans. Like it was a response, right, to the attack on Pearl Harbor, Nazis invading, and all the evils they were doing. Even though we didn't really know about the evils, but they were invading. It's so, hard to disagree that the start was just. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. It was defensive, right? The goal was to just put Europe back to the way it was. You know, all these things. Um, but the means at which it was fought made it an unjust, it was fought unjustly, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is like a sticky thing. I, I don't know, situational ethics is always like something I don't really like getting into. Um, so I, I, I guess, you know, when I talk about this, the, the, at the bottom, at the end of the day, it, it's, it's almost, impo- it, nowadays, it's almost impossible to fight a just war in the way at which wars are fought, right? It doesn't mean it's impossible per se, um, yeah. but I don't know if like, the last like just war that was fought. I can't think of anything on top of my head. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard. Uh, And and this is especially uh, timely to talk about with our pulling out of Afghanistan and all that. Right. Yeah. Like it's, it's pretty easy to, uh, I mean, this thing's been going on for 20 years. Like, right. and, and it seems that at every stage, there's been little to no attention paid. To, right. To, to and, innocents, and innocents have died yep. almost every month. Like, yep. fr- from our missiles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and it's, in, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily want to chase this rabbit down this rabbit hole, but like, 
Um, it's interesting. The church is like the church isn't a fan of like drone drone war either. Like drone, oh, do war. talk about that. Yes, because uh, you, I could see somebody butting in here and saying, "Yeah, but um, drones are like surgical, right? It's precision striking here that yeah. are taking out." Uh, I mean, all you have to do is look at our conflicts in Yemen to realize that they're not they're not quite as precise as right. we um, say that they are. But yeah, say more about drones. I, I and I haven't overly studied this, so take take this with a grain of salt. But I'm pretty sure it's because. Um, it's going back to the whole uh, combatants issue, right? Um, because we're asking machines to make moral decisions for us to a certain extent. Now, obviously, there's an operator behind the drone, um, but it's a uh, you know, the church is just is not a not a fan of like robots doing the dirty work. There's a there's a it's it's almost like a video game, right? Like yeah, you're, yeah. you're you're uh, you're desensitized to the human cost of warfare when machines like this are used. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so we'll see if the church ever formally takes a stance on that, um, which I don't know if it actually has a stance on drones. No, yeah, I don't, I'm yeah, not I don't sure. Think so. I don't yeah, think yeah. they have yet. Um, but uh, but yeah. So I mean, all this basically kind of going back to you know the the reason this is important to know and just be able to have a nuanced view of it is when because when you read the Old Testament. There, almost every book talks about war or like yeah. violence or yeah. like, I mean, right. So it's, it's important to know what the church teaches now. Also not reading into the old Testament that way because the church wasn't founded yet. So the fullness of truth wasn't there. Um, but also, yeah, like no, just knowing that this is not an easy topic. Well, and one beautiful advantage that we have as Catholics is that the church still speaks. So what we're not trying to do as Christians in the 21st century is just look at these ancient texts and do our best guesswork to try and figure out which parts we should imitate and which parts we shouldn't. Like right. the church that was founded by Jesus has always existed and never stopped existing and it still has the authority to weigh forth on these matters that affect our our faith and our morals and our life in the world and of course that includes war. So uh, the church is teaching tradition on just war from uh, Augustine to Aquinas and then um, picked up on Vatican II is what we kind of hinted at today. But y'all should really go and read that stuff. It helps put your politics in perspective. Um, you know, two things you're not supposed to talk about at Thanksgiving, politics and religion. Which I never get because it's like, if that's important, <laughs> like, let's talk about it. But maybe it's just because I, I like talking are about it. Are stuff. there more interesting things to talk about in the world? I'm not right. sure. But uh, as Catholics, we understand that our politics ought to follow our religious convictions and not right. the other way around. We're not just yep. supposed to, like, have political beliefs and then try and cram Catholicism into some little side corner of that edifice there. Like, right. our religion is the foundation for uh, how we think we should live and move and have our being in the political world and, in, of course, in the spiritual world. Yep. And then, um, I guess... That's something that just came to mind that we're not going to dive into. But just, just to say is, I think a lot of times when people think warfare in Catholic Church, they think like crusades, right? Oh, um, sure, right. And, yep. and so even going back to the very, 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 very first crusade, um, it was called because uh, pilgrims were being killed, right? Um, so it, that was some just action. Just cause. Just cause. Um, but like it obviously very quickly became unjustly fought in some ways. Um, in a lot of ways, uh, just once again, the second non-combatants are, are purposely targeted, yeah. right? And yeah. unfortunately, this isn't due to um, the generals or kings necessarily. It's just, it's due to the men on the ground, right? Sure. So um, it, it's it, like going back. I mean, I think just war has to be fought by <laughs> totally virtuous men and women, you know, men, um, hopefully. Um, and, and just in all practicality, they those aren't the people that fill the army all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to get into crusades, but it's just, I think, throw it in there. If you know? there are any aspiring army chaplains out there, 
know what the heck the church says about warfare. <laughs> yes, yes. And like, know that it's where, a else are, where else are people going to learn this stuff? They're not right. going to learn it in boot camp. No. Go, go and help them out. Definitely not. That's why, as a soldier, if you're commanded to shoot a non-combatant, you, and if you're a Catholic, you, you have the moral obligation to say no. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. take the consequences, right? It's an exemption. Uh, it's an abstention on uh, religious and uh, conscientious grounds That's of right. conscience. Yep. Yeah, for you, sure. You say, sorry, officer, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't get me wrong. I say this as somebody who's never been in the army and never has never been any kind of situation where that's been the case. We, but have, we have a little, uh, not much skin in the game here, do we? No, yeah, no. But we have friends and loved ones who um, have been in the service. And right. so this is the kind of stuff that you... Uh, you got to talk about. That's and, right. And if, if, if Thanksgiving is too hard, bring it up another time. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Don't ruin my turkey dinner. Um, all right. Well, thanks everybody so much for tuning in this week on Catholics with Bibles, talking about can God command genocide and just war and all that good stuff. So once again, my name is Chase Kraus. I'm Ryan Pollock. And we'll see you next time. God bless. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in on today's episode of Catholics with Bibles, where we're continuing through Mike Heiser's The Unseen Realm. Next time, we're going to talk about part six, Thus Says the Lord. We look forward to seeing you then. Bye-bye.